Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Uh, we're reading Judges 6. It's a great story. So, uh, yeah, over to Drew. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years... He gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They come up with their living livestock, with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was thrashing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied. But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Picking up again in verse 25. That same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on, top, on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it. It cut down, and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, 
they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he's broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Gideon and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abizarites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms and also into Asher, Zebulun and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. Well done, Drew. Fantastic reading. Uh, great story. Um, one of the experiences that I think uh, we all find so hard is the experience of helplessness. When you realize you are not in, uh, you don't have the power to solve a situation. Uh, we often deny uh, the feeling of helplessness. We pretend we're not helpless. We don't, you know, we have the power, or we try to avoid it at all costs. But it's not an experience that we can evade forever. Uh, it will come to us at some point. I feel helpless. Uh, for some of us, it's the background noise to our lives. We feel helpless. You know, my earliest childhood memory, I think I was three years old. I was on a holiday, and I was walking by the side of a swimming pool, and I fell in. And, uh, and I remember the feeling of sinking. And it's kind of, I describe it as an out-of-body experience almost. I can almost picture myself falling and drowning. And I remember that feeling of being helpless. I was three. I couldn't swim. I was drowning. I was sinking. And my life was almost over. And someone dived in and uh, saved me. It wasn't mum or dad. I always remind them. Um, but another guy dived in and saved me and pulled me out to safety. So I was helpless and powerless to change a situation, and someone rescued me. That's the story of Gideon and the story of Judges 6. I wonder if you feel helpless or where you feel helpless and powerless to change a situation right now. Maybe you look at the state of our nation or our capital city, and particularly the homelessness and the housing crisis, and you feel helpless, powerless. How are we going to do anything? Maybe look at the state of the church in this nation, and uh, young people are leaving in droves, uh, secularism and liberalism, that, you know, it's very hard to feel like we're ever going to make a difference now as people become more atheistic, and uh, the atheistic laws or the, the liberal laws are being etched into our, in, you know, with new referenda into our, in our, into our society. Maybe at work or at home or in your family, there's a tension and you feel powerless. I can't. I feel unable to change the situation. Maybe it's something that's recent. Maybe it's gone on for years. You're drowning, unable to swim. It's a horrible feeling. It feels scary, the feeling of helplessness. Well, the great news of Judges 6 is that is exactly how Israel felt, and it's exactly how Gideon felt. And God would use Gideon and in Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament, in the great chapter on faith, Gideon be in there as a man of faith. He felt completely inadequate for his calling, 
Yet God equipped him for the task. And the story shows that God uses the most unlikely people, despite their weaknesses, to carry out his purposes. Gideon is a story of the Gideon principle, God's strength in our weakness. So let me give you some background, and we'll think about the first seven verses. It starts in, in chapter 6, verse 1, saying, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, if you've been with us in the book of Judges, this is how the cycle works. God delivers them. They enter a time of prosperity. When life goes well, often the same with us, we get complacent in our walk with God. So they abandon God. They start worshipping idols and, and following the practices of those around them rather than following, following their God. And so then God judges them. His judgment is to hand them into the hands of their enemies. Then they're oppressed. And then in their misery, they cry out and go, oh, yeah, we need to humble ourselves and get right with God. God raises up a deliverer, a judge. And then they enter a time of prosperity. And then eventually they get complacent and the cycle goes on and on. And so that's what happens, the second part of verse 1. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. This is the height of humiliation for God's people. Just imagine it. Rescue out of Egypt, into the promised land, and in the land flowing with milk and honey, they're oppressed rather than free by their enemies. And they're hiding, and they're scared. And so we read in verses 3 to 5, that each year the Midianites and the Amalekites and other eastern people would come at harvest time when the Israelites were going to get all their crops and they'd invade and they'd impoverish them and they'd steal their crops. And so the Israelites were very poor and they were kind of hiding like rabbits in the holes in the countryside while the Midianites invaded like locusts. So they were plundered every year. And so in verse 6, things have got so bad for the people that they cry out in their hardship. And they say, Lord, help us. It took seven years to humble the people that they might cry out to God. They were stubborn and forgetful people. And what did God do when they cried out in their hunger and in their desperation and fear? They want a deliverer. They want food. They want someone to feed them because they're hungry. And what did God give them? A preacher and a sermon. I mean, that's terrible, isn't it? I'm hungry and I need, I'm fearful and I need saving. And I get a preacher with a Bible ready to speak at me. That's verses 6 to 8. Do you see that? He sent them a prophet. They want a meal to nourish their hunger. And God says, let me remind you that man does not live on bread alone, but on the very word of God. They want God to change their circumstance. And God says, no, I want to change your heart. I need to get my word into you, not food into you. Don't we do that? You cry out, God, save me from these circumstances. And Karina talks about it in her story. And God says, no, I'm trying to reach you in your circumstances if you'll open yourself up. And so that's the question for us today. Are we listening? The Israelites took seven years for them to listen. God had to humble them. Are we humble enough to listen to what God might say to us, to teach us? So that's the setting of our passage. Midianite triumphalism. Israelite humiliation and God's reminder to the people to listen and be obedient. And now comes Gideon, God's man for the moment. As verse 12 puts it, a mighty warrior. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Here is the mighty warrior, 
anointed by God, appointed by God to rescue the people from the hands of the Midianites. He was the man that God would use to turn the people from worshipping Baal to worshipping the true king of Israel, the living God, Yahweh, Gideon, God's mighty warrior. So where is the mighty warrior? Did you see it in verse 11? The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak of Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where Gideon his son was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. That's astonishing. Trying to thresh wheat in a wine press. The threshing of wheat was always done on the top of a mountain where the wind would blow. And therefore, the, the chaff would be blown away and the wheat would fall to the floor. But Gideon is fearful, so he's doing it in a sunken wine press. This mighty warrior is as fearful as the rest of the people of God. He's not any better. He's hiding. He's scared. He's sharing in the national humiliation and shame. And here's the thing. Gideon knows he's no mighty warrior. He has no delusions of being a mighty warrior. In fact, in a very similar way to when God calls Moses in Exodus chapter 3, Gideon finds three or four excuses. God, no, no, you must have got this wrong, God. It can't be me you're talking to. Most significant is verse 15. I love it. So polite. Pardon me, my Lord. But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I am the least in my family. He's no mighty warrior. He's from the weakest tribe. Of the, he's the least in his family. He's hiding in humiliation and fear and shame with the rest of Israel. So why did God choose Gideon? Because the passage is the Gideon principle. God's strength is shown in our weakness. He's no superhuman, but he's in Hebrews 11. He doesn't actually have a great faith. He probably has faith as small as a mustard seed. But that amount of faith can move mountains. It's a great encouragement to me to know that people like Gideon end up in the hall of fame of faith. And when God says to him the term mighty warrior, that was not true of Gideon's experience at the time. It was a prophetic word in a sense from God to say, this is who I'm going to make you. Just the other week, I was flitting, flicking through my Twitter account, and uh, a tweet struck me. I can't remember who said it. It says, God doesn't call the anointed, he anoints the called. God doesn't call the anointed, he anoints the called. You know, God renamed Ab Abraham, Abraham, the father of many, before he was the father of one. Jesus renamed Simon Peter, which means stone, before he was stable, yet he became the rock on which he would build his church. God turns up to Gideon and says, mighty warrior. And Gideon's like, I'm not. And God says, no, but I'm going to make you. In fact, you are now in my eyes, and I'll make you that in a reality in your life. Isn't it wonderful? This is what Christianity is about. God comes to you, and he calls your name, and he says, you're a mighty warrior. You're my child. You're a light to the nation. You're an instrument of my peace. You're a repairer of broken walls. And you go, me? And he goes, yeah. I don't feel it. No, you don't. I'm going to do it. We need to hear God's voice again, calling us by name and saying, I'm going to equip you. You're going to be a warrior against the darkness. Me? Yeah, you. And most of all, we need to hear God say, and this is what baptism is about, you are my child in whom I'm well pleased. What, me? You're yeah, because of Jesus. God doesn't call the anointed. He anoints the called. Instead of allowing you Instead of allowing what you think about yourself to dominate your self-image, 
Let what God calls you dominate your self-image and allow him to equip you as you trust his promises, not your feelings. So how did God equip? He calls him a mighty warrior. How did he make him a mighty warrior? Four things. The first thing, God gives Gideon the assurance of his word in verses 14 to 16. In fact, three times, verse 12, the Lord is with you. Verse 13, am I not sending you? Verse 16, I will be with you. And today we have the same assurance. As God names us and calls us, he assures us. Ola read it out earlier. Go into all nations and make disciples, and surely I am with you always. We have the assurance that God is with us. He's given us his word. Jesus, the last thing he said, he kept saying it, I won't leave you as orphans. I'm going to be there to the end. What a great comfort. If you want to step up into the calling God has put on your life, the new identity, you need to know he's given the assurance he's never, ever going to leave you. That's Karina's testimony, and it's such a hard testimony to listen to when you hear what's gone on in her life. But she said it herself, God was with her the whole way. You need to know that assurance. Secondly, God gives Gideon a sign, verses 15 to 24. Gideon needed to know whether God would accept his worship. If he's going to turn the nation of Israel from worshipping Baal to worshipping Yahweh, well, would God accept his worship? So he takes a couple of hours, he gets a goat and some bread. It wasn't in the reading, which I shortened it a bit. He places it on a rock, and the Lord zaps it with holy fire from heaven, as if to say, you know, I accept your worship and your offering. It's a symbol and a sign of God's acceptance. And it's actually a principle we see throughout the Bible that the word of God comes alongside a sign of God's presence. So the, the objective word that we know in our head becomes a reality and experience, maybe it's a deep assurance of the Holy Spirit that you are God's child, and you sense it. Maybe it's a dramatic answer to prayer, and you go, God is with me. I, I, I kind of knew it, but whew. Maybe it's peace that surpasses all understanding in a, in a case of trial. Maybe it's a miracle. Maybe it's a financial provision when you were like, how am I going to find the future with the finances? The word of assurance becomes real in a tangible way, somehow. For Leanne and I, when we came to Dublin to plant a church, um, we knew God was with us, but he answered four very specific prayers. And it was such an encouragement. He is with us, and I'm experiencing that. In the early days of, of church planting, the first year or two, I'd often get very discouraged. There's six and eight and ten of us. You think, how are we ever going to get a church off the ground? How are we ever going to make an impact in Dublin? And I'd often be walking through town, and I'd just pray, Lord, give me a little encouragement today. Just something to encourage me that you're with me. And he would. It wouldn't be necessarily big. It was just enough to go, no, I'm with you. So God gives Gideon the assurance of his word. He gives Gideon a sign. Thirdly, God gives Gideon a test. Do you see the test? Verse 25 to 32. God now wants to test the sincerity of Gideon's commitment to him, even at the risk of his own life. For, the, for Gideon, the test was dangerous. Because he had to cut down an Asherah pole and tear down the altar to Baal. And it was a risky and provocative operation. Not only to Baal and the Midianites, but we're going to learn later to his own father who'd become a Baal worshipper. In other words, God, Gideon, God had to know, and Gideon himself had to know, is my allegiance to God over my family? It's an important question. You want to be used by God? You want to step into what God's got for you? You have to know the answer to that question. 
do I love Jesus more than my own family? And Gideon had a test. And God often will do that to us. I just finished reading the book of Job in my personal devotions. That's what the whole book is about. It's to, you know, it prefaces it, chapter 1, verse 9. You know, does Job just love God when God blesses him? What happens if you take everything away? Then God, he's going to curse you. It's a test of Job's faith. Will he, will he give his allegiance to God even when everything goes wrong? And Job passes the test. Abraham was tested. Would he sacrifice his own son? And he passed the test. So Gideon is tested. Where is his ultimate allegiance? And he passes the test. Now, it's very human. He goes at night. He's risky, so he does it at night. And in verse 30, we read, the people of the, when he cut down the Asherah pole and, and just destroyed the, the altar to Baal, the people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son, he must die, because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. And then what happens is Gideon's dad, who was a Baal worshiper, defends his son, protects his son, and becomes a believer in the true God overnight. Gideon's obedience and risk is honored. It's not always, but in this story, it's honored with his own family turning to God. And so it's true for all of us. You want to be used by God. You want to step into the calling and identity that God has for you. He wants to test you. Where is your allegiance really? Will you put me over your family, will you? You, will you do something risky? As the famous missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, put it, unless there is an element of risk in your exploits for God, there is no need for faith. Let me ask you, is there any element of risk in your exploits for God right now? I.e., have you left the place for God to come through for you and not relying on your own strength? You're relying on his. And will you pass the test? When a moment comes and you have to choose Jesus over your family or over friends or over something, he's wanting to go, have I really got your allegiance? So Gideon has heard the word of God's assurance. He's seen the sign of God's assurance lived out in his own life. He has passed the test. And then fourthly, God gives Gideon the gift of the Holy Spirit, verse 33 to 35. Look at verse 33 there. Now all the Midianites and Malachites and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped at the valley of Jezreel. So it's like what we learned at the beginning in verse 3. A swarm of foreigners, uh, camels coming to plunder Israel. And like the rest of Israel, Gideon would have been tempted to run into his rabbit hole. But what has changed? Verse 34, the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon. And he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiezrites to follow him. The Spirit of the Lord it literally clothed him. It took hold of him and he blows his trumpet. He becomes a leader. He calls people to warfare. And in chapter 7, next week at the family service, there's a great story. You might know it. And God says, no, I need to whittle down the number of men. And he ends up beating the Midianites with just 300 men who drank like dogs. <laughs> Come next week. And so God too gives us his spirit. We are clothed with power from on high. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. What does a later prophet say to the people of God? Zechariah, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. So the Lord prepared. The Lord said, Gideon, you're a mighty warrior. Gideon goes, I'm not. And the Lord prepares him. And leads him into a victory against all the odds, from hiding in fear to conquering in God's strength. How did it happen? He received an identity. 
and he heard God's word say, this is who you are in Christ, or in the Old Testament, this is who you are, but now we hear that word, this is who you are in Christ. How did it become a reality? How did God equip the one he had called? He gave him assurance of his word that he was with him. He gave him a sign of his, of his acceptance and encouragement to him. He tested him with something that would cost him, even in his own family. And he gave him the Holy Spirit so he could move forward, not in his strengths, but in God's. Now, I know some of you are thinking, wait a minute, there's a fifth sign, the fleece. This is maybe the most famous part of the story. It's not actually a final sign for Gideon. It's, uh, you know, it's not, people say this is how God, God you know, people can use this as an example of how God guides. You know, put out a fleece like Gideon did. Well, uh, God, God did use the fleece in Gideon's story, but it's actually a sign of his unbelief, not his belief. It's not an example to follow. It's an example not to follow. Read verse 37 carefully. Gideon says, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all on the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand. Listen, as you said. He already knew what God said. This wasn't to discern God's word. It was actually showing he didn't trust God's word. He said, as you've already said, I know you said this, and I'm just scared. I want you to take all the risk. I want you to give me a 100% guarantee about the future, God. I don't want you to take, I want, can you take every element of risk out of this? Can you just show me in some dramatic way? And I'm like, yeah, that's like me. That's like you. It's not a sign to follow, but it's a great encouragement of how patient God is when we do that. God, I know the future, and I know there's going to be steps, and I've got, to just, I've got to take some steps without knowing all the answers, but could you just do this fleece thing, and we'll just know all the answers, and I'll take all the risk? And God can sometimes be very patient in our unbelief. But do you remember when Jesus faces the devil? He says, you know, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Gideon's testing. This story it ends with Gideon showing that he's actually full of unbelief. And therefore, it is a great encouragement to me to know God's grace. I stumble, I fall, I falter, I go astray. Remember, Gideon had seen an angel. He had received assurance of God's word. He'd seen fire come from heaven. He'd passed the test. He'd received power from on high in the Holy Spirit. And he still struggles to believe the word of God. And he's in the hall of fame of faith. He just has faith as small as a mustard seed, but it's enough. And in the next chapter, he's going to win this amazing victory. But in chapter 8, it's actually all going to go wrong for Gideon. And he's going to turn to vengeance and idolatry. It's a very sour ending to a rather amazing start. But that's the book of Judges. And that's our lives. We, we think we're on the rise and then something goes wrong. So may the fleece not inspire you to test God, but be inspired and amazed and humbled at his patience and kindness who gives a second chance after second chance. It is a great comfort to me that God used Gideon because I'm like Gideon. I doubt, I worry, I take two steps forward and one step back. I lose perspective. I rely on my own strength. I want God to take all risk out of my life. Uh, I know he's dependable. He's shown himself to be dependable and yet I still doubt. Yet Gideon ends up in Hebrews 11. If there's a place for him, there's a place for you. Be encouraged. Hallelujah. So what do we learn from this story to finish? Well, primarily, it's the Gideon principle. God uses strength, his strength in our weakness. God is the hero of this story, not Gideon. And we must remember that Gideon is unique. He's one of a kind. There was a moment in history where God did this for a particular reason. 
But he couldn't actually fully and finally save Israel because I said in chapter 8, he's the one that gets in the way. He ends up being the problem with his vengeance and his own idolatry. So the story points forward, like the book of Judges does, that we might long for the real Savior to come, not to save us from our circumstances, but to save us from ourselves. That's what Gideon needed in the end. And years later, God sent such a deliverer. And in the world's eyes, he was weak. He was born in a stable. He grew up like a tender shoot. He had no majesty or beauty to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected. He was weak, and he died in weakness. And yet the Apostle Paul would say the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Why? Because he didn't defeat temporary enemies like the Midianites. He defeated our eternal enemies, sin, death, hell, and Satan. What does it mean? It means we have so much more than what Gideon had. We have a greater word. We have a greater sign. And we have fully and finally received the gift of the Spirit. So may we step into the calling and the identity that God has placed on our lives to be lights, to be peacemakers, to be warriors, to be instruments, to be repairers of broken walls, to be servants, to be evangelists, and most importantly, to be children of God who we are. We have more than Gideon, more assurance, more encouragement, and the final and full giving of the Spirit in our lives. So when we feel small and pathetic and insignificant, hopeless and helpless, let's remember the Gideon principle. God is patient with our unbelief, and he can turn weak people into mighty warriors. The apostle Paul said, God uses the weak and lowly things of this world to nullify the strong. It's the Gideon principle. Do not be discouraged. Remind yourself of the Gideon principle. Know God's strength in your weakness. Know God's patience in your unbelief. Know God's equipping for the name and the calling he's given you. Amen. Do you want to stand? We're going to pray and sing. I'm going to pray first. And I want us to take a moment, and I want you, like Gideon, to actually admit the doubts you have. I love the way Gideon says, pardon me, Lord, I just no hope here. I want you just to take a moment to actually say to God where you feel like that. It's actually a good thing to do. Why do you disqualify yourself? Why do you think it can't be done? Why do you think God wouldn't use you? Talk about it now, just quietly. Why do you disqualify yourself? Why do you not allow the word of God, what he calls you by name? Why do you, why do you stop that coming into your life? And I want him, I want you to hear him call you. And you're, it's not about your strength. You're hiding in a cave like Gideon. Fearful, and he says, Mighty warrior. Just hear him call you, Mighty warrior.
and then receive his equipping, the word of assurance that he's with you always, and the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower you. And Karina, as I said, I want to just encourage you again from Mark 6, Talitha Kum, that you might step up into your identity and calling as a child of God, that God sees you as beautiful, spotless, and radiant, and he wants to use you, and that your past doesn't have to define you, but God's name, as he says, my child, that defines you. And may we too, as we think about baptism and celebrate with Karina once again, sort of reaffirm ourselves to say, Jesus, you have my allegiance. May I be willing to tear down the Asherah poles, to destroy the Baal altar, and to do it at the cost in my own family. Just again, where you are, just commit again to Jesus. So Father, we thank you. We thank you for the Gideon principle. This isn't a story of a great man who did great things. This is a story of a weak man with lots of unbelief. And yet you showed patience and you showed your power. We thank you how Gideon points to Jesus. In the world's eyes, he was written off. He was hopeless. He had nothing in him that was impressive and yet you used him. And I thank you that when we think of the reasons why we might disqualify us and we might think we're hopeless... You come and say, no, it's my power, it's my strength. So we thank you, Lord, and we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.